Hey listeners, before we get into this episode, I have a quick ask to make. I started this podcast as a research project on how to be a top individual contributor in the product design space. My goal for the show was to learn what it takes to be an individual contributor that's doing amazing, impactful work that they love doing day in and day out and getting paid top dollar while they do it. Becoming that type of individual contributor is the ultimate job security. With close to 100 hours of interview recordings, this has naturally led to the creation of the short form video articles that synthesize my learnings into 10 minute listens of actionable content. You might recognize these as my morning walk episodes or the hashtag shorts episodes. To my surprise, those episodes have been very well received and listeners have enjoyed the synthesis of what I've learned. This has led to the next chapter of my research project, which is beginning to synthesize what I've learned into a new newsletter called Thinking Out Loud About Design that you can subscribe to right now for free. Thinking Out Loud About Design is an email newsletter and podcast that basically contains all my synthesis for my long form interviews. It's pure distilled learnings that you can apply to your career immediately. This content is for you if you are a couple years into your career and you're trying to make that move from mid-level to senior designer and senior designer to staff designer. I mainly focus on becoming high-performing individual contributors in the product design industry. A free subscription gives you full access to the newsletter, podcast episodes, and website. You won't have to worry about missing anything because every new edition of the newsletter goes directly into your inbox. So my ask is this. If you have gotten any value out of the way of product design, or if it's helped you in any way or someone you know, please subscribe to Thinking Out Loud About Design and get the distilled learnings on being a staff-level individual contributor. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes of every episode of this podcast and on my LinkedIn page. Just look up Caden Damiano. Thanks again for listening and supporting the way of product design. I wouldn't be doing this if you guys weren't listening. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the way of product design. I'm Caden Damiano. We know design is valuable, but how can you unlock its true value and tie your design work to business impact? This show interviews product designers, product managers, and tech leads from places like Google, Domo, Divi, IBM, Intuit, and Uber to find out what makes a valuable product designer and how you can be one as well. All right, listeners, um, have an awesome guest on today, uh, Sanjana Matur. So Sanjana, she's currently at Lucid, um, which is a uh, visual thinking tool. Uh, they just recently released a really cool product, and I'm, I don't know if you're involved in that, but the, their new uh, Spark or like their whiteboarding tool. Lucid Spark, yeah. We're yeah. really excited about that. That, so that'll, that'll give you a nice timestamp as to when we uh, recorded this interview. But yeah, it's a really cool tool that is um, obviously thriving in the remote work um, era of COVID. And I, I, among all the other things I want to ask you about on like how the company's uh, pivoting and stuff like that, I want to focus a little bit more on your expertise. But before we get into that... Um, Sanjana, can you just introduce yourself to the listeners, talk about your path and your career, and we'll go from there. Yeah, um, thanks for having me, Kiran. Um, my name's Sanjana Mathur. I'm a UX designer at Lucid Software currently. I originally am from Mumbai, India, and I sort of started my path in communications and mass media. That's what I studied. 
And I sort of found myself working in advertising. So I was a copywriter at Publicis. And just throughout that process, I found myself being drawn towards design more and more. So I would spend lots of time with my art directors. We would work through storyboards. I critique things like that. And I often had people say, oh, if you're interested in this so much, why aren't you a graphic designer? Because that was like your go-to design space. And so um, over time, I learned a little bit about ITCI from my now husband. And he was sort of going in for his grad program. And so I happened to give him like Don Norman's Design of Everyday Things sort of book most people start with. And I had it for about two days before I gave it to him and I was completely hooked. So I got to this point where I didn't want to give it to him, even though I'd bought it as a gift. And then that sort of followed like this six month secret research around what is UX, what is HCI, trying to muster up the courage to say I'm okay with leaving my stable job and wanting to switch careers. And um, that's sort of how I ended up moving to Bloomington, Indiana for grad school. So I did my uh, master's in human computer interaction at Indiana University. And then I ended up meeting some designers uh, from Lucid that come in to recruit. We had lunch and we just had such a positive process that I ended up uh, joining Lucid as an intern during grad school. And ended up coming back full time. It was just a lot of learning and a lot of growth. And that's sort of been how I am where I am today. So your husband's a designer as well? He is a UX designer as well. Do you, if you don't mind me asking, uh, where is he at? Who is he? Maybe get, so, get a UX so, power couple in the valley here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> His name's Babishan and he is also a designer at Lucid currently. Oh, so okay. That's, it's really great. We, um, it was pretty fun. People always uh, are surprised and want to know like, did we meet at Lucid or not? We did not, we met before Lucid, but we're sort of at the same company now and it sort of makes it fun to talk about different projects and stuff outside of work. Wow, that's super cool. I mean, then you basically never clock out. Because you're on <laughs> the same true. design especially team, with, right? <laughs> especially with uh, COVID do, it's just constant UX talk. Yeah, you're- It's be a good thing and a bad thing. So you basically have a, a bullpen at your house. <laughs> I actually do, it's you're, kind of funny. Yeah, you're co-located, that's that's super cool. Um, well, that's great. Um, well, Sanjan, uh, we talked about this before, um, this interview, but uh, I asked you about, you know, hey, like what concerns you most about like the industry? Um, and uh, you described um, something that has to do with the design process. Could you just um, elaborate a little bit about what you told me, like what, what's concerning you right, as a whole, like, you know, as an industry yeah. as a whole? Yeah. I think um, one of the things that we sort of talked about was that UX is evolving pretty rapidly, right? It's It's been on that upward path for some time, but more companies are recognizing UX. It's growing up. It's starting to become a crucial pillar in development and building of software. And one thing that has started to be on my mind more often, or we're having more active conversations about like sort of the speed of the velocity of UX, right? How quickly are you expected to deliver designs? And is, is design like this deck of secret cards you have in your pocket that you just sort of bring out when the time is right? And how do you explain to people 
sort of the process that you have to go through when you're trying to design something, when you're trying to solve a problem versus just having an answer that you were just holding back until the final due date. And so I just, um, I'm starting to, when you say concern, I'm starting to think through like, how is speed affecting the quality of things that we're releasing and how can we sort of use speed as a positive, but also something that we're very conscious of to make sure we don't, um, you know, miss out on quality or drop the ball in other areas just because we're trying to be fast. So, yeah, like it, there is, um, I think there's a stigma. I think it's really easy for design in an organization to become, get the branding of the people that slow things down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with I, I, I think, well, by fault of our own and, also no fault of our own you know our ux design we've always struggled to fit in agile right so like we always had to say Mm -hmm. say like because agile wasn't invented uh with design in mind right so designers have always had to struggle with well oh let's slow down a little bit let's let's think about this and then that leads to the stigma that like you can't move fast and iterate fast with proper UX process and design process. Um, uh, but so like for, for you, Sanjana, like what, what, what do you think are the, the biggest like break points in like at traditional agile and like how, how is it not like serving UX? Like how is it potentially uh, influencing the quality of UX in like a negative way? Right, yeah. and then like maybe in a yeah, and then from there, we could talk about how it's also forcing UX to adapt and become better in a lot of different ways. Right. Um. I think I, I completely agree with you. Right. I don't think Agile was made with UX in mind because a lot of it is very development focused. Right. We we like to split stories into sprints. We like to estimate them by one or two week increments. And design always doesn't work that way. Right, let's say you're in a discovery process and you've decided that you want to talk to 20 users to try and validate certain problems that you already know of. You can't always say, I'm going to talk to all of these people in two weeks, right? Because their timelines may not match yours. Or you can't always say, I'm going to extract information in one week because that's the best way to do it. You often will use the week as a constraint and you'll, you'll play by the rules, but it's not always optimal to the process, right? Those are sort of um, limitations that you're coming in with. And so I, I often think that um, if we had to sort of rethink how we did a lot of UX processes, would we, would we change based on Agile, hmm. right? Like, would we change how we did research or would we change how we did synthesis if we said Agile or Dime was a strong component. You know, we always talk about the quality of the research that you get or the the information that you get, how rich is it, but you never talk about how quickly you did it. You know, no designers like ever showing off and saying, oh yeah, I spoke to 10 users in one week and these are all the amazing things I got. And it was so quick that I did such a good job. Like time is never something that design talks about consciously. And, um, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm thinking through this too as I'm talking to you and I'm yes, just trying to think like, time is never a factor that I 
personally like bring into my design process it's always an external factor that has to play in because they're obviously in a business environment you have to play by certain rules and you have to play with your team and if they're they're following a certain process you have to follow it too yeah and i think at the end of the day i think it's not about time rate it's about burn rate you know it's money being spent resources being spent mm -hmm. on a project right like you're not, you're not exactly, it's not like, oh, you need to go fast for the sake of going fast. Like we need to be moving in a timely pace yeah. while money's being spent on this project. And if like designers aren't um, kind of like, at least like trying to maintain some kind of velocity in a project, which yeah, you're right. Like in design school, we don't think about timelines. Like we get some, like maybe probably get basic project management um, skills, but like there isn't, yeah, time's never really been like a factor. It's always like, okay, let's do this right. Let's do this high quality. Um, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, like I I think there's a lot of, there's a, there's a bit, there's um, more of a case for a design to adapt to real business use cases like agile, like frameworks, right? Um, then for the world to adapt to the UX process where we we always like maintain best practices and stuff like that. But um, like what are, what are some of the benefits you've found when, because I'm pretty sure like you've, you've mentioned that at Lucid, the design team, the engineering team has very tight cycles. I'm assuming that's like very tight um, agile cycles or like learning cycles. Can you just explain like what's, what's happened as like you've, as designs kind of adapted more towards the real world and, you know, timelines and engineering and stuff and how could you maintain quality while adapting? Yeah. Um, I, you know, as we were sort of thinking through time, obviously, you know, creativity isn't a dime box activity, you know, it's, you have to let your mind flow, but if you didn't, right? Let's say design is done best in an agile environment. There's a lot of positives about it, right? Like um, one big one that we talked about was collaboration. You go through the cycle with engineers of just like um, design and handoff and development so often, you're doing this every two weeks, that um, you get really good at it, right? Like um, I have some of my best relationships at Lucid are with my engineers because they're so intimately familiar with the UX process that um, I'm starting to see more and more of an overlap. So, you know, it's not that I'm done with design and then I hand my designs off and someone else starts. I'm starting to see more of an overlap where I'm having brainstorms with my engineers or um, I'm able to tell them, okay, this is sort of the direction that I'm thinking in. I'm still working some sections out, but um, what do you think? And they can be like, sure, I can, I can start with some of this, right? If they agree or they have some sort of framework that they can build, they can start building while I'm still designing. So I, in fact, um, I have this, uh, we recently had this funny incident where um, I was working on this design. It was sort of a quick deadline and um, I shoot over a Figma link to my engineer and he's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm already in there. I can see your work and I'm adapting how you're changing. And I just, I thought that was amazing because I felt like the lines were blurred between where like UX stopped and where, where development started. And I thought that that came from um, 
sort of this concept of keeping up the speed or the velocity of your work, you know, really um, getting that return of investment in a certain time. I also sort of, um, you know, there's this whole framework of ideal design. So let's say your extreme right is your ideal design solution. And your left is a bad solution or something that sh really shouldn't be done for the users. Uh, any, any designer would sort of love to sit on the extreme right and say, this is the most ideal design. This is the best thing that I could ever produce. And yet that design may not be the ideal design at the time, just because of time constraints or other constraints. And so you start to move a little more towards your left. I'm moving my hands. Obviously, your users cannot see, but um, she's making a spectrum with to, her hands right now. If you, that's right. If imagine, you, imagine, imagine like this. Yeah, and so you're starting to move a little bit towards your left to try that right spot of ideal design in this period of time, or a design that can scale with your current constraints. And so you're always playing this game on this spectrum, right? Which is where does ideal design sit today based on the requirements that I have. And sometimes the design can sit on uh, MVP, right? Which is not my favorite place to be, your minimum viable product. But sometimes that's what you have to do. And then over time you come back and you add polish or you make changes and you make design improvements. But it's really good design is often defined by what your team and your users need and not always about the best idea that you can have. And so I've sort of, um, I'm starting to see that there could be some benefits if we just adapted to working faster, but not in all situations, right? Sometimes you do need the time to do a good discovery cycle. And if you try to do MVP or you try to quickly solve a problem, things will get dropped. Mm -hmm. You can't make sure, do it quickly and also make sure it's great. You know, sometimes that doesn't work out. So I think the recurring theme for me when I think about speed is instead of looking at speed, um, as like the factor, maybe it's more like a characteristic of like timeliness. Like, is this timely to the project or to the problem? Um, the criteria that I use to determine the amount of urgency and time spent on like a project, like design resources allocated, is just more of like risk level, right? Like, okay, if everything went wrong after we implement this, like how fast can we recover? And based on the answer, like, oh, well, this is low risk. Like if we change this uh, button language and it tanks conversions, we could just switch it back to the old version or, you know, me medium risk. Like we're, we're changing the layout, but you know, it's not like it's going to blow up our conversion rates if we, you know, m mess with the layout too much. And then there's like high risk, like regulatory risk or um, like, oh, this could, we could lose customers <laughs> if we, if we get this wrong we're going to spend more time on it. Is there any other criteria that you use um, at Lucid to kind of establish like, because I, I, I hear all about how fa like fast Lucid does, you know, oh, we made a design system in three months or, or 90 days or whatever. And, and uh, oh, like we allocated like a week towards this or like we convinced our executives to let us allocate a week. Is there times where you've kind of met a certain criteria where it's like, okay, we're going to spend a little bit more time on this. Yeah, um, I actually started to see that happen more and more. You know, earlier uh, we were a much smaller team and so we loved working quickly. We had a smaller user base and so we were able to achieve our targets much faster. But we've really grown, right? I think Lucid has over five 
billion users. I don't know. Don't quote me on this. The numbers like not coming back Like half the world. I thought you said billion. Half the world. That's right. Half the world is using um, different Lucid products. And so um, we're starting to um, be smarter about identifying areas where we need to take more time. We also now have a slightly more mature product team, which is, which is sort of starting to push back for UX, you know, they're starting to say, yes, we could do this quickly, but you're not going to get the quality that you want. And so your product manager is your best friend there, right? And a lot of times they make that case for you. We recently worked on um, this conditional formatting project and we, it, was a, it was a big redesign, um, at least for my team, because we hadn't touched it in a while. And we realized really quickly that um, some of the improvements that we wanted to make, we were trying to make in this fixed timeline that we'd created for ourselves. But users and even internal users were expecting a much bigger redesign. Mm -hmm. And so over time, we had to sort of adapt our timeline mid roadmap and be like, okay, if we if if everyone's expecting us to do a redesign, we could get the resources for a whole redesign. And so over time, we had a lot of um, a lot of uh, product managers and um, leaders go to bat for us and say this team needs more time if they want to create something truly exceptional. And um, we were actually able to get it more easily than I thought. You know, we were we just had to make a case for why we needed more time. And we were really easily able to get more time and more resources to make this a success. And it and it worked out really well. We actually were asked by our SVP to make a little um, case study to show um, how we got to such a high success because we did really well when we A-B tested the feature. Hmm. And so usage went up pretty high. And so we were asked to present like, what did we do differently to actually reach the success rate? And one of the biggest points were, well, we gave the time mm -hmm. to the team to actually do good work. And that's, that's really where I come from when I sort of say, we should be conscious about how quickly we try to push design to deliver. So in that use case, was it, did you identify um, more of a, cause you think of like the layers of like a product, right? There's like the interface layer, there's like the interaction design layer and the information architecture layer. Like what was, like what layer was that problem like kind of rooted in? I think, um, I think it was at the interaction level um, conditional formatting wasn't a new concept, right? People have been mm -hmm. doing it for years, a lot in tabular forms of um, software. And so it was really at that interaction level where we were having a hard time explaining to users how to use the feature. Mm. And then in addition to provide the advanced features to more power users. So we had to go in and really break that problem down and say, how do we even make the basic functionality usable and easy to understand? And so we did a lot of usability testing and we we went in and talked to a lot of people to see if they really understood the concept of how we would use conditional formatting in a diagramming platform. Mm. And then from there, we started to build saying, okay, now that we have a base foundation there and you understand the interactions that we're expecting you to have. Now, how do we add more features in there? And then that took a more traditional development path. Right, so, I mean, that that kind of, that's kind of like fitting like a hypothesis that I have when you're, like, when you also are creating like a criteria for like, oh, should we spend more time on this? Is if like you find out through like the research that there is like a system, 
systematic level uh, problem, like the the interaction mm-hmm. design is not working. And usually, like the interaction design, like kind of drives like how the whole UI is going to fall into place, right? Um, and that's a little bit bigger than like a quick iteration where you could just focus on like a functional slice of a screen or like an interface. Because um, yeah, like when I spent, I I did a project and it it was like a dense. I actually told you about this one time, um, but it was like a dense two months and. It was because it like from like an information architecture level, like that, like it the the current solution was just fundamentally flawed, like where where we were collecting data, and it was messing up the interaction design, and that was like okay, well we can't quickly iterate off this, like the system's broken, we need to actually like <laughs> refactor the system so that we can actually power good front end experiences. But so like that, that's when it makes sense for me, right? But like if it gets down to like a interaction design level thing or like once the, I mean like not like a UI design level thing, then you could kind of move a little bit faster. Um, if the interaction design is pretty solid. Oh, I got a note, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yeah, so the, if the interaction design is solid, then then you could start kind of optimizing the interaction design at like a faster level mm-hmm. right um yeah like uh at the same time i think designers f- from that perspective they could kind of like learn how to design products that you could kind of anticipate how they could be built um i actually just found this article at work where here i lift up my mic so i could turn my head okay there we go um <laughs> that um, you should be thinking of like functional areas of your app in like vertical slices. So everything that you are building should be able to get broken up into like a data, something that has like a data access layer, a business logic layer, and like a user interface layer. So, you know, if you're looking at like a dashboard, for example, like a developer should be able to make like one of the charts and like the add and like from like a atomic level make that component mm-hmm. right and so like as a designer we need to also consider like okay what well, what could we break up and and you know lucid has so many different functional clusters in their software right so i mean like you need to be able to kind of allows you guys to like a b test and um, focus in on like certain functional aspects that could be like developed over time. That was kind of a long rant, but I mean, that was like the big insight I had just listening to you guys talk about it. Yeah. And, um, I often find myself also sort of thinking that when do you really have, when do you spend the time to look into a problem more deeply, right? Like when do you start to make some of these vertical layers or when you, when do you start to understand what level you're having a problem at, right? Does this come from your product manager? Have you spent some time doing discovery work? Have you spoken to users who have um, hinted at a problem or you've observed how they're using your platform? And um, you know that I, I've seen that to change. I've, I'm starting to see like that the discovery process is not as linear. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of times, uh, you know, you'd come in and you'd say, okay, I'm in this discovery process where I'm exploring the problem or I am talking to users and finding a new problem. And then I'm going to move into design, create iterations, get that tested and then keep moving. Um, I'm starting to find that sometimes a lot of the discovery is happening during the design process. So you might think that you've come in with a certain problem and then midway you, um, you start designing and then you discover that, oh, actually it might just be a systems problem and not really an interaction or a UI issue, mm-hmm. which is how you came in. And I, I, I can't think of any example right away, but um, that makes sense that like discovery is almost moving through the process from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And it's no longer at the start of your process where you have to know your entire problem before you begin. Now you're sort of uh, breaking through the pieces as you're going through it. Yeah, and you know, that, I think that's like the next evolution of our profession, right? Like if, um, if we can learn how to not make the process linear, which I think that's what agile is, right? You know, I think that's the magic of agile is that it's never been linear. You don't have to know everything to move forward and make meaningful progress on a project. Like, how do you do that in like a design um, environment? You know, one of them is like learning how to uh, break up like your big idea into functional like vertical slices, right? Um, But you also mentioned that like there's, there's a very blurry line at Lucid between like uh, when design ends and development starts, right? It's it's, it's a lot more blurrier. And you know, uh, like uh, Matt Matt Smith, Matt Matt D Smith, um, he did like a Twitter poll uh, just to like get a feel for like he knew the answer, but he knew what he wanted to get like an actual like response from developers. Like, hey, like what are like best practices for? And he puts in quotes handoff. And then all the developers are like, okay, if there was a handoff, then you did it wrong. Like there should never be a handoff. Mm-hmm. Like you shouldn't be handing off with your developers. And I think that's like the the more ideal state in like a product um, environment is eliminating the handoff and actually just making design and development kind of like a quick iterative cycle. Um, but you know, being able to have the discipline as a designer to break up the ideal design process across multiple iterations, which I think is like really hard, <laughs> especially like if you're uh, more like n- like a newer designer for me, it's just like, it's really hard for me to like break up. Like, no, I, this, I have this, I made this design, this whole holistic process. Everything is needed to, to work together. Everything is needed to work together. And like trying to figure out like, okay, well, how can I test this one idea functionally in, in production right now? And like allow that to be the the discovery process instead of like designing this master plan and trying to figure out how to <laughs> break it up into development so that we can actually test the ideas. And, and it's a hard thing to do, right? Like a lot of times we'll we'll talk to designers and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, these this this whole big idea is great." Exactly like you said, right? That everything has to work together, and that's when your amazing idea is going to. Um, come alive, but we often will push them and be like, okay, if you had to phase this out, or let's say you had only a third of the time, what would you change? Or how would you phase these designs out so that you could actually test them out through the process and reduce some of the risk of this upfront design investment? And it's it's still something that like, I feel like I struggled 
study, right? Which is uh, where do you draw those lines? You know, how do you know that the part that you're leaving off is not the part that's going to actually bring success to this idea? And so it's a it's a hard problem. Well, and I think that's what separates you know junior mid senior designers, right? Is kind of having that maturity to um, take a step back and um, understand that like uh, you could do this over time. And then if you are in like a product organization, right? Like you're, you know, like you're, you've been elusive for a good while, right? Like if you want to make meaningful products, you just need to stay somewhere for like a, in at least like a couple years to get like meaningful progress because that's just, it takes time to build something that, you know, touches like millions of users, right? And, and you just need to be able to think like long-term, like, okay, this is like the vision I have, but I'm just gonna test this one aspect of that idea in a functional way with my development team. And that, and I, I really like this idea that you're kind of, you're bringing up is that that's the discovery process too. Is like, even though we're building something and putting stuff into agile sprints, like having the expectation that we are experimenting with this release and we were learning something from it. Like we don't have to have it figured out before we build it. Um, uh, that's really like awesome. That's a really awesome idea. I think what scares designers and I, and you know, even talking about that makes me like, what scares me is that we get to that point where, you know, people are like, oh, well no, this is just MVP. We'll ship it and then we'll fix it later when we learn. And then they never do it. Like how do you, that sounds like a cultural thing. Like how do you prevent that situation from happening where it's like, oh, we'll fix it later. Oh, we're just learning. And then they move forward to the next yeah. initiative. That's a, that's a really hard thing. And um, I feel like, um, especially when you're a startup or a smaller company, that's, that's a really hard thing to get to, especially just because like, well, the, the MVP is making us money or the MVP is growing. And you, I think as the design team evolves more and more, you need to bring that maturity in. I, um, I think, especially with my team at Lucid, we've started to talk more and more about this concept of advocating for design. And that each designer has to be a design advocate, but so do people outside of the design org. Like we need to make the time and the space for these polished stories. We, uh, in fact, will consciously start to call some stories like um, either polish or delight stories. And we have this, we have this neat um, like Slack channel called like delight inspiration. And everyone will keep posting different ideas that brought them joy of like either design or UX or different things. And um, we'll, we'll try to get inspired by those, you know, we'll try to um, look at those and be like, okay, how do we get here? How do we create sort of this design inspiration or um, how do we delight? Sorry, my, my puppy is a little bit crazy right now. We, <laughs> That's fine. Uh, staying <laughs> staying pointing. in the show. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's clearly very excited about this concept of yeah. polish. Yeah, UX dog um, too in the UX family. That's right. And so we, um, we're, we're starting to drive more and more for delight. I can often find myself advocating for it more. I have to keep reminding my team, hey, let's go back and do this. Remember we said we're going to prove delight here. And uh, the easiest way to get buy-in is to prove the value that it would bring. I'm starting to really learn that it's not just about having a good idea or a design, but it's also about how you sell it. 
even internally, right? Like, how do you get your stakeholders to buy into this concept and say, okay, we're going to take X number of engineers and a QA and a PM and a UX and, and let them spend extra time polishing this. And what are we going to get out of it? And so um, this, this sort of role of being a design advocate, um, you really need to polish your skills of talking to your stakeholders and saying why polish is important or what it would bring to the company or the users. And I, yeah, yeah this, this argument really helps, or at least it's helped me in the past in trying to get some of the teams to come back and say, okay, we're going to dedicate time and make MVP better. Yeah, so it's all kind of having like an active initiative of like, okay, how can we add polish to this? Um, how do you, how do you uh, kind of frame up, how, how have you framed up that conversation, right? Like, how can you say like, okay, I think we're at a good space right now, like where we've established like business model fit. Like we obviously have people using this and it's meeting a lot of their needs. Um, now I think it'd be cool if we could really add like elements of delight, which I think the definition of delight eludes me a little bit, but from what I understand, and let's see if we have the same definition, delight is um, exceeding expectations, right? That's what co that's what causes delight. It's like how can we exceed their expectations in the software? Like they're expecting this to happen, we're gonna like over deliver on that interaction. Is that like what, how you see what delight is or? Yeah, um, yeah, I'd agree with that. There's also this aspect of surprise, right? Uh -huh. bringing, bringing a little joy to them or bringing an aspect that they were not expecting. Mm -hmm. But definitely this concept of going above and beyond, right? Doing more than the minimum viable product. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things in this, um, this increases the amount of work that design has to do up front. But I think the biggest thing is trying to show the value of Delight or the value that a polished story could bring to the user. And so I've often found like telling empathetic stories about users or talking about the pain that this, this problem has solved and then the joy that it brings really goes a long way because um, you and your product manager are really the people that are talking to users, right? A lot of the external stakeholders and a lot of the um, sort of managers don't often have the luxury to talk to a lot of users. They have too much on your plate. And so if you can sort of bridge that gap and show them the value that this could create or the happiness that this could bring, I've often found that they'll immediately buy in, you know, they'll immediately empathize mm -hmm. and they'll say, you're you're probably right that if, if this is the sort of power and this is the sort of joy that we can bring to somebody, then sure, let's put the time in. I've often also found like my product managers will help show the quantitative benefit. Mm -hmm. So if they can show things like usage metrics increasing, or if they can show like um, overall this might this might increase BDR or this might increase um, the polish or the perception of the product, that also goes a long way because now you're immediately putting a dollar value on the effort that you want to bring in. Yeah, you know, I think that's the, you're implying something that like it. It all comes back to great products are made by great product teams. It's never done by a, like a master de planner, designer, or master engineer, mm -hmm. or, you know, or like a visionary product manager. It's a it's a product team, 
because I think it isn't up to you as a designer. Like you should own selling the idea, but there is aspects of it where your your engineers and product managers can't help. Um, you know, product managers could spend a little more time like building a business case for something. Like it doesn't necessarily you have to understand it as a designer, but it doesn't necessarily need to be you, right? Like and I yeah. I also think like the biggest thing that attracts me to UX and a lot of people is just the constant challenges, right? Like no project is the same. Mm-hmm. With each one, things are different. You're constantly changing. You're trying really hard to make sure your design is relevant and changing with the new design trends. And so that's what really makes it so exciting, you know? Like there's some designs where you have to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna learn over time and we're pretty confident where we are today. And there's others where you're constantly iterating because that space is changing so much mm-hmm. that you that you have to keep working to keep up. One interesting like thing that I heard um, some of the product teams in other companies mention is that some of them are changing their definition of MVP. Oh yeah. So some of them are not not calling it like minimum valuable product or minimum viable product. They're starting to say like minimum delightful product or minimum lovable product. Mm. And I think that's really interesting because you're sort of you're sort of raising the minimum bar. Mm-hmm. Right. You're saying that even even the most basic thing that we're going to release is going to hit at least all of these marks, and then we're going to do some more. And I sort of love that change in thinking and I love the maturity that companies and teams are starting to show with um, what they're willing to put their name on. Uh, yeah, it's you like, would you, are you willing to put your name on this? Like, do you want your name yeah, to be like, associated with this release? And, and usually it's like, no, this is crap, but I mean, it's the minimum viable product. It's like, no, like you want to be able to be proud of what you shipped, right? That's right. Yeah, no, I, I do like that, and I, I I think that's a good indicator that the industry is moving in a good direction. Where I think minimum viable product it, it fit a need for a, an era. I'm not a big fan of it, and if you've listened to any of my earlier episodes, I, I actually bash MVP a lot. Um, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, in a way, I was right because we are moving away from it and <laughs> moving towards like, okay, well, this also needs to deliver like some kind of like wow factor to because i mean people don't people if they want to switch especially in SaaS, like people aren't going to move over to the competitor because it's has more features now they, they move over to the competitor because it is delightful or it's like twice as delightful as the other product that they're currently using like it needs to really over deliver on that um and i'm from a person looking outside looking in you know, like Lucid Spark to me seems like it's so that it, it is kind of like a product that it needs to kind of go beyond like what the Lucid Chart software is currently doing in order for people to leave things like Mural or um, or uh, Figma because Fig- I'm sure Figma's got some kind of competitive aspect in your guys' space um, for visual thinking. Um, just That's the fe- sort of right, right? Like. We, we started at functional, you know, that used to be the first level. Is this functional? You uh-huh. know, can you even use this? And and now the barrier is increasing, you know, like when as I was one of the teams that's, that was involved in the release of LucidSpark and right up front, right, the whatever, if you would call that the MVP release, 
it had to be lovable. It didn't start at functional. Mm-hmm. You know, right up front, they said, well, the first level cannot be just a feature that people can use. It has to be something that sparks joy, that brings people happiness, or that solves a real problem Yeah, that someone's having, you know, not just a platform, yet another platform for someone to use. Mm. And so you're, you're right that... Um, the 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 sort of definition of MVP is really changing, mm-hmm. or it, it has to change to be able to keep up with some of the um, other competitors. Yeah, I mean, honestly, a lot of lot of softwares, commodity software. Like how many business chat companies are out there? You know, how many? Mm-hmm. How, like basic functional, like so, like it's totally capable, like work workforce management, or you know, just like they're they're becoming commoditized and so like they're ha- the, the only differentiator really is delight and a lot of like these SaaS use cases right like it needs to over deliver than just the the basic functional aspects of it um i i have a question i want to ask i don't feel like it goes with the thread of this conversation but um i have two two questions before i i end it um, you talk about how at Lucid, um, one of the former managers there um, was trying to make a bunch of UX ninjas. Like, can you quickly define what a UX ninja is? <laughs> like, <laughs> sure. I know it's kind of like, um, uh, it's a pivot, but yeah, like, I, I really, yeah, I'm, I really um, want to ask you. It's, uh, it's, it's something I actually love, you know, whenever, whenever I talk to people about what I love about Lucid, this is a big aspect, which is... Um, Think of a Swiss Army knife, right? Mm -hmm. It does a little bit of everything. And so I, Lucid really develops its designers to sort of do a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. You know, that if you sort of had that one tool that you wanted to use to really get a good experience out there, this is the one that you want to use. And so we really, um, we're really involved in the process from the beginning. You know, I'm... I'm a part of strategic conversations with my product managers all the way to the beginning of understanding what the business problem is. You know, UX has been involved in even understanding what space does the business want to go into three years down the line. Mm-hmm. And all the way from there, like we we then go into, okay, on a scrum team level, how can we actually help, right? How wh- What is the influence that we can have in this space? And so your product manager and you will start to build out a roadmap. You'll start to build out strategies and ways in which you can influence this area. Your UX then starts to do more discovery work, looking into competitive research. Mm-hmm. And so I know a lot of companies have researchers and I bet Lucid will do in the future, but right now the designers love doing their own research. Yeah. They love having that really close tie with users from the beginning. You know, it really like, um, I, I actually have some calls with users where it, it's it's really painful. Like I can feel how bad they feel through their process. And I I find myself constantly apologizing, saying, I'm sorry you have to go through that. And that, mm-hmm. that sort of pain really drives you to design something amazing for them or push yourself or your team or your company to go beyond and really solve this person's problem because they've been loyal to you and they're struggling yeah. with the, in a certain situation. And so... We really like go through from strategy all the way to discovery, design, running our own usability testing, 
um even with a b test right we love to we, we product managers are experts there but we love to go in afterwards and try and help build hypothesis of why this happened or go in with hypothesis and then try to really play this game and see how well we know our users mm-hmm. to see well will this match how you're thinking or do you need to adjust your thinking and so that's that's really what i met by ninjas which is a little bit like you're doing a little of everything and you're doing it really fast so there's like a it's more of like a generalist design team culture mm-hmm. right <clears throat> and, I'll, and i'll tell you one more interesting thing at least about um our ux team at lucid is that even though we're all generalists as we hire we hire people with different backgrounds mm-hmm. so we have someone who has a very heavy research background we have someone who comes from a very graphic background we have someone who is an engineer or someone who is an architect and so these individuals also bring in a, a lot of knowledge. Yeah. And so even though everyone's a generalist, there's individuals you can go in, go to for advice or for polishing something if you really need the help. Because yeah. Because you know they're experts in their own area. So, I mean, it's more of a culture of like T-shaped designers. Like everyone, you should, if you are a designer at Lucid, you should be able to speak to the end-to-end process of making a product. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to be an expert um, you should be like an A player in like at least one or two places, and then you, but you have to be like at least a B player everywhere else, and that's like a UX ninja person, right? Is sure. We <laughs> we also attract people who love doing everything, right? Like yeah. if you if you asked me what portion of that I would leave, I would have a really hard time answering that question. Right. So yeah, you'd prefer to be like a a generalist. That does tie into what we talked about, right? Because I think. That just means that, like, we need designers. Lucid at least needs designers like that. And I think I could argue most companies need designers to be like that because a UX designer needs to be able to hold their own in any part of the process. Early discovery meetings, they should be able, like, they should be a, a strong authority figure at the table, right? And um, in development, they should be able to speak to the technical aspect of the product with the engineers. Um, in research, they should be like able to hold their own and like get actually like good insights from the process, mm-hmm. and that allows for zero handoff. It's just cons- consistent collaboration, no matter what part of the process you're in. You know, you're able to adjust, right? Yeah. Um, my last question, you know, because we're running out of time. So my last question is this, and you know, it's actually uh, it, you're you're going to be the the guinea pig because it's the new final question of the show um like what is um what is one setback in your life that made you the most grateful and happy like what what's the what's the one thing that went wrong that you're happy went wrong i mean like in general in life or in my career Let's like focus in on your career. Designer. Like what, you know, like what didn't, what, what didn't happen that led to, you know, the life you have now and, you know, the career, the, the career prospects you have now. Um, <laughs> I, I guess two things. One's a little more higher level on design. The other one's a little more related to my current career. Uh, when I started into the design process, I initially thought of going into communication or industrial design. I 
product design, not software, but was the really popular thing then, and obviously a slightly more um, ev- uh, de- developed area. Mm-hmm. It was a little more ahead of UX at the time, and I remember sort of wanting to go down that path and didn't get into the right colleges that I was hoping to. And so instead sort of stuck with advertising and waited for UX to come along. And now that I do it, you know, I I can't imagine doing anything else. Mm -hmm. So I sort of, what I mean by that is sometimes the the shots that didn't work out actually don't work out for the right reason. I'm a firm believer of like, you know, whatever's happening is happening for a reason. Mm And I, I actually, I genuinely love the field of UX and I could, like for the first time, I feel like I know what I want to do for at least most of my life. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. I think that's sort of, um, that, that was sort of like a setback or a failure that I think brought me to where I am today. Mm-hmm. Uh, another big one was when I sort of started my career at Lucid, I was put on a data team. This is a team that was trying to figure out the how how Lucid was using data and how we were using data linking. And the reason I say that is because I'm someone who's from an arts background. So did psychology classes, did mass communication, was really interested in like um, visual design. And so for someone like me who had no background in anything data or technical to be dropped into a team where everybody else seemed to be way smarter than me. And every engineer was like this back end superstar. It was a really difficult space to be in. And I had sort of imposter syndrome for the longest time. And over the years, I actually think I have become one of the sort of data design experts at Lucid because I designed in that space for so long, right? Like I designed the data linking, the org chart, the conditional formatting space that I really thought that putting me in a space that I was uncomfortable in made me work harder to know this new space. And I almost love it. I recently moved into a slightly more core experience side, but it was sort of amazing to look back and think that, oh, I was in this space that I wasn't looking forward to, but now I love it. And I actually consider that that's sort of become my niche or I often have people reach out to me to ask me more about it. Whereas in the beginning, I thought I wouldn't be able to perform here. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that answers your question right away, but... Um, no, it does. I, I mean, it's just very good answers. It's just me a little. Well, I think it's it's like, you, you don't, people don't go into design working on like APIs. <laughs> like designing api right. experiences right but then you find out like holy crap like this power is most of like the delight in software it's usually it's not like a interface design challenge it's making sure that the back end powers these great front end experiences right um mm-hmm. well sanjana uh that um i think that that about wraps it up that that was um that, that was a really great discussion i learned a lot and you provided a lot of value. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, is there anything that uh, you, you want to uh, say or like speak to um, before we sign off? No, this is great. I, I love talking design. So thanks sort of for having this conversation. This is really fun. We're all cooped up at home in our own um, routine. So it was nice to sort of break out from it and just talk to fellow designers. So yeah, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, no problem. And, you know, honestly, like, I feel like COVID has helped the podcast because now everyone's kind of home now, so they don't feel, <laughs> so it's a little bit easier to like get people on the show and talk about design more. So it's actually been a pretty uh, beneficial aspect of it is getting more conversations with people. Yeah. Well, you have awesome. a good one. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Kata. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Way of Product Design. If this episode resonated with you, please share it with your network and write a couple lines on why you found it useful. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help the show grow, please leave a review on Apple or Google's podcast platforms. As always, thanks for listening. You have a good one.